Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello. Welcome to New Books and Music, a channel on the New Books Network. My name is Bradley Morgan, and I am joined today by my guest, John Clace. John is an independent scholar, and his latest book is Breaks in the Air, The Birth of Rap Radio in New York City, and is published by Duke University Press. John, thank you for joining me today. Thanks so much for having me. Very excited to speak to you today, Bradley. Well, happy to have you on. Uh, first things first, please share with us what your book is about. Yeah, so my book is called Breaks in the Air. The subtitle is uh, Birth of Rap Radio in New York City. And it's really a chronicle of how rap went from a community music that was performed mostly in black and brown outer boroughs in Manhattan and uh, the Bronx and New York to a global music that was broadcast on the radio in the record industry via uh, a couple radio stations in New York. So I try to trace... Um, the way that different artists approached broadcasting that music in New York, the opportunities they had, the way different executives and radio industry personnel thought about broadcasting rap music in the context of commercial radio, and sort of all of this really interesting social and commercial um, activity that was happening around rap as it met the radio studio. So your book opens up with you setting the scene. The radio is on, it's 2 a.m. during June 1982, and after some moments of static, we hear the world's famous Supreme Team show. Tell us more about that moment and why you chose to set the tone for your book. Yeah, absolutely. Um, So I really liked that particular anecdote for a couple of reasons. So one, I was really trying to push back against this notion that radio is something that we listen to in the car, that it's a one-to-many medium, that it's really just a sort of a broadcaster in a corporate radio context with a pre-selected playlist broadcasting to a static audience of people who are listening and consuming. Um, And I also sort of wanted to do this particular anecdote because it comes from a tape. It comes from this sort of uh, recorded artifact that speaks to a history of active listening and active recording and distribution after the uh, broadcast itself, which is something that I I try to draw on throughout the book. Like these tapes are the major source for the history itself. And they just really attest to how active people were listening and where it fit within that social life. But to me, this, this anecdote, it's really illustrative because it shows a couple of things. It shows people, the, the broadcasters, the world famous Supreme team speaking in a manner that is like very professional and very practiced, but very outside of what we'd consider the sort of normal radio patter that we're used to from commercial radio. And it also speaks to a couple other uh, ways that we can really hear those listeners within the context of the broadcast itself. And so some of that is their they're asking them to call in, they're asking them to listen, they're delivering shout outs, which is like very much building and like showing this world of listeners around the broadcast. They're doing things like they're talking about sending these tapes to incarcerated people, which is, is showing us like really where this fits in this social world. And I, I, I liked it because not only is it like music they made themselves, music that matters to this community, people in the community imprinting themselves on the broadcast in a bunch of different ways, but it, it sort of like brings up that whole social world that becomes the foundation for the narrative that I want to show throughout the book. So you mentioned that it was based off a tape, and we'll discuss some more specific tapes that you mentioned throughout your book a little bit later, but I wanted to kind of approach those cassette tapes more through the collector and archival perspective. Um, You write that the era of hip-hop radio still lives on through these collector and archive circles who recorded these shows onto cassettes and then digitized those cassettes cassettes as MP3s online. You write in your book that MP3s falsely promise access to the recording content, but hide the dense web of practice and sociality that were part of 80s cassette culture. 
Can you tell us more about that? Yeah, absolutely. So that's that's going deep into like how media theorists have thought about MP3s and how it's, um, music scholars and media scholars think about what recorded sound gives us access to. So one thing I really wanted to push back against was this idea that if you have a decontextualized MP3 online, so this is just like floating file, that it's going to give you access not only to that event as it happened, so like some sort of attestation to what was happening in the physical space that it was recorded and who was listening, who was there, what it meant to them. But also the fact that like we didn't go from a recorded broadcast or just a broadcast that was like happened on the FM waves. This is like one medium where it's being distributed, disseminated in a time that is now 40 years in the past to its embedding on the internet, that there's a long history of exchange and recording and trade and treasuring that goes from point A, which is like a person in a radio studio broadcasting to point N, which is me in 2014 Googling uh, like yeah, like a DJ Africa Islam, like Zulu beat show to like find it in the present. There's like, I really wanted to like pick up on all of those threads that led to these being embedded on the internet in the present. What I really found interesting about that collector culture is that some will share everything freely while others are more selective because restriction means uh, it becomes a means of setting boundaries and you're right, that is a practice that brings dignity to early hip-hop. Can you tell us why? Okay, so so what I mean when I say bring dignity to early hip-hop is I think by in putting in that scarcity behind it, by drawing social boundaries and who's allowed to have access to a recording and policing sort of who was who was there, what it meant to them, and and in, like uh, situating hip-hop within a particular community of practice, it, it really... It makes it about the people who lived it rather than making hip hop sort of a, a floating, um, widely accessible to anybody who would want to like glom onto it, who would want to just say, now, now this is part of what I'm interested in. Um, it makes it makes it part of that original community of practice. And that community element is strewn throughout your book. And it's, and it's really a fascinating perspective because a lot of histories on radio imply the relationship that it has with listeners is unidirectional and therefore becomes something that we can take for granted. But your book demonstrates that that relationship isn't passive. With hip-hop radio, there was a community element that both influenced and was influenced by its listeners. And by asking through that cassette culture, I want you to kind of tell us more about that relationship. Yeah, the relationship between uh, the broadcast and the community and like how, how one influences the other. Absolutely. Yeah, so... I want to I want to just rearticulate something that you just said, which is like traditionally we think of radio as a unidirectional medium. Like the radio is something we tune into, and then we hear whatever is presented to us. But when we look at what actually happened with hip hop radio, that wasn't the case at all. And let me give you a couple examples to show what I mean by that. So, if you look at some of the early radio shows, the Supreme Team being one of them, Africa Islam Zulu Beat being another, but even the the more uh, quote unquote commercial shows, the ones that were on commercial radio, um, like the Red Alert show or Chuck Chill Out show, all of them have really, oh, and I want to really put in there the Awesome 2 show as well. That was This is a really great example of that. All of them had extremely deep connections to artists, to indie record labels, and to their audiences. And you start seeing these networks where 
individual artists will send a radio broadcaster their music. So there's that community connection and what gets played and when. And there's the connection between where artists would start to, or not artists, the, the broadcasters would ask their audience whether they or not they like something. They would, they would like have all of these really interesting ways of figuring out whether or not a track that they played was resonating with their audience and sort of use that as a finding community aesthetic preferences. Um, and then you also start to see things like the, the shout outs and the airing of um, different voices on these broadcasts. Like if you, if you listen to a normal community broadcast, unless it's something like NPR, where there's an explicit interview component to it, we don't often think of the listeners as contributing that much to uh, those broadcasts. I think it's another format where that would be true. It'd be like AM talk radio, where the, the whole format of the show is listeners call in and they talk about a current issue. But this would be something like listeners would call in and shout out all of their relations. They talk about the music. They talk about what it meant to them. They'd be brought in for interviews. And, and it's sort of in the aggregate of all of this and the sort of the, the networks where music makes it from artists to air and then to record label or audience is actually like sounding on the record itself to the networks of circulation of tapes after the fact. Like you start to see radio as organizing all of these different interesting musical and social connections throughout a specific community. So the title of your book, Breaks in the Air, is an idea that you share saying it comes from the ways in which hip-hop communities adapted musical and cultural practice to radio. So what does Breaks in the Air mean for you in that sense? Yeah, so I, I meant it in a, in a couple of different ways. So like it's it's obviously the the pun where it's like uh, breakbeats is like the sort of foundational unit of early hip hop being broadcast through the air. So I wanted to allude to the fact that these are quite literally breakbeats existing in sort of that like FM spectrum. Um, another of it was like trying to embed it in the way breaks meant at the time and like use that as a sort of an aperture to the cultural history at the time and the, the socioeconomic history. So I, I try to root that in Curtis Blow's understanding of the breaks in his uh early 1980s track of the same name where he's like going through and like, it's like doing the early hip hop, like verbal fireworks thing where he finds about like 15 to 20 different meanings for the word breaks in there. But all of them sort of refer to like hard times, tough times and like situations of like low luck and hardship. And the idea being like the, the canonical narrative about hip hop in the eighties is one where uh, black and brown people in the South Bronx and Harlem are confronting this series of hardships based on the, like the implosion of social services um, and like very tough economic situation in those neighborhoods, but finding moments of resilience in it and finding ways to push back against it. So you see hip hop is this like art form of like salvage and recreation and recombination of existing materials there. And all of this creativity there. So I wanted to sort of like root it in there in the breaks. And part of it is also just trying to um, position it as part of a broader intellectual conversation as the way um, theorists of African-American history have referred to the breaks before in like Fred Moten's classic formulation. So we're going to talk about some of those programming, um, some of those stations and the personalities and DJs that made them up. But first, I want to kind of explore some other context um, that you cover in order to provide context to the development of rap radio, you examine the history of FCC policies and regulations up to the 1980s, especially the deregulation of the telecoms industry during the Reagan administration. For those unfamiliar, can you tell us what was happening at the time? Yeah, absolutely. And I also, I'm, I'm glad you bring that up because one of the things I was, I was very cognizant of writing this book, like it's a book about rap radio. And I had a particular reader in mind of someone who's going to be interested in the history of rap radio. And then you open the book in the first chapter as a history of 
deregulation. So I think there's like a little bit of explanation that needs to happen as like to why this isn't a bait and switch. Um, but the, the idea being is you can't understand the context of rap being put on the radio, which is, a, it's, it's, it's not necessarily a community medium in the way that um, like park jams would be a community medium. It's, it's federally regulated. It's extremely expensive and it's a massive commercial industry. There's just like not the same amount of access to the airwaves that you would have with other more immediate forms of musicking. So I want, I wanted to situate hip hop within this broader uh, social and economic context that was changing rapidly in the United States, because it really inflected how people thought about the opportunities that hip hop had on the radio and like the potential for personal and broader social gain that existed. So with all of that said, the eighties can broadly be characterized as an era of deregulation of the telecom industries. And what that meant is there were previously strict standards as to what kinds of content could be broadcast, um, the amount of promotion that could be broadcast relative to the amount of programming, and then strict uh, controls over the ownership of a station. So any one entity could only be allowed to own a certain number of stations in a certain broadcast market. And that was across radio and television and other broadcast media. Um, And across the 80s, you start to see all of these regulations, first slowly, and then very rapidly erode such that by the end of the 1980s, there were very few controls over how many stations that a specific entity could own. Um, Things like the Fairness Doctrine were repealed, and the Fairness Doctrine was very important for information-focused radio, where it uh, specified that any viewpoint that was uh, broadcast on the radio should have a counterpoint viewed against it, or should at least be space for a counterpoint to be viewed against it. And by the end of the 80s, all of these sort of programming and ownership rules were rolled back such that there was a massive influx of capital into the radio industry. So you start to see the valuations of stations go skyrocket, like some increase tenfold over the decade. And when you start to have higher valuations and more commercial potential, you start to have different incentives in the radio industry. So typically radio was not a great industry for investors. There was just the the management burden to uh, sort of gain potential was, was, not favorable, but all of a sudden when station valuations can go through the roof, when the term for ownership goes down, so you can flip a station, you don't have to own it for five years before you can sell it. You can own it for a year, turn it around and then sell it for a huge amount of profit. Um, All of the incentive shift and that really rap sort of matured as a genre and found itself on the radio at this moment, like, uh, sorry, excuse me, at this moment in time when the sort of foundations of radio itself were getting really rocky because all of this new capital was flowing into the industry. And so what that meant was a lot of these smaller stations would get bought up by media conglomerates and these large media companies, they really embraced these regulatory changes because these investors were realizing radio had a growing profit potential. But along with these changes, you write that a lot of black media owners were skeptical about being represented in the industry and securing financing, financing options largely because of the racism historically noted, uh, rooted in lending practices and broadcasting. Can you tell us more about what their concerns were and what the deregulation meant for them? Yeah, and I think I think I kind of want to root this in a specific story because uh, there were broad concerns about the role of minority broadcasting in North America during that time, but there was also very local concerns about how... Um, 
how media was supposed to serve black populations in this like very specific post-civil rights moment. So, so the broader context that I try to explore in the book is the birth of uh, the inner city broadcasting corporation uh, in New York city. And the inner city broadcasting corporation was headed by Percy Sutton, who was a Manhattan politician, um, the mayor of New York for a while. And he had, he came up through the civil rights moment, uh, very involved in the uh, Southern civil rights movement in North America, and then ended up settling back in New York City. And he and his sort of like milieu of the black elite in New York had a media philosophy that stated that broad racial progress in the United States was going to come through owning media properties, it was going to come by controlling the flows of information and being able to re-image black life in the American mind. So for him, station ownership meant that he could portray black life as sophisticated, as urbane, as cosmopolitan, and really confront what he thought were racist and pernicious images in the mass media of black life. It could be used to at once rally an audience and grow a kind of political consciousness in uh, black listeners in uh, those media markets, but it could also for white listeners re-image what they thought a black population should look like and sound like and be like. So when deregulation happened, And a lot of the protections that minority broadcasters had previously enjoyed started to be threatened by this, like uh, the one, the the new amount of money that came into the industry and two, the sort of uh, broader accessibility of station purchases to mass like conglomerate media buyers. They started to feel that when ownership would swing toward monopolies, they would no longer be able to have the space carved out for creating information for their communities. Everything would sort of merge toward the mass middle. And what had previously been an extremely important medium for creating and disseminating information within the Black community would get pushed out because there'd be so much money involved that all of a sudden you could only serve the largest audiences, the richest audiences, and those that advertisers felt would be the most valuable um, to their accounts. I'm really glad you mentioned Percy Sutton because he was a figure that I really wanted to talk about because he had a very fascinating background and he was a very pivotal figure in the industry. And I thank you for covering that history of him. I wanted to also ask because you note that Percy and the management of the of the station that he would find he would found WBLS, they often found opportunities to rehearse the station's political commitments. And I was wondering if you could tell me how exactly that they did that. Yeah, I, I think it's it's super interesting because because they these were such connected people and they they viewed media in such a forward-looking way like in something that it really anticipates the way that like social media and a lot of uh sort of our own media ecology functions itself so so one one piece of context i should add here is that his sort of social sphere was the political artistic and general black elite in new york so so i mentioned that they were connected but not only did he have an audience in uh, the larger New York dailies, like the the New York Times, all of the New York magazines, like that whole media ecosystem. But it, he also owned the New York Amsterdam News for a long time. He ended up selling it because there was a perceived conflict of interest that he said hurt him publicly. Some, again, this is, this is interesting. Like I look at the sources and I, I don't know what's happening privately versus what he's stating publicly. But when he sold the Amsterdam 
news, he stated that it became a political liability because he believed that his detractors felt he was exercising too much editorial control over that newspaper and using it for his own gain. Um, but I don't, I don't know the extent to which that is true or that's the, the face that they put out. But the when it comes to their political commitments, uh, I want to I note that the first station that Percy Sutton Inner City Broadcasting Corporation purchased was WLIB, which was a smaller station than WBLS. And it, it really was what they envisioned as the sort of black information network station. Um, it did broadcast music. It had a variety of programming, but when they purchased it at first, it was, it was really like the, the previous owner, Harry Novick had called it the, the, like the voice of the ghetto. Um, and when they took that over, they, they not only inherited that listenership, but they sort of inherited the political uh, opportunity and the sort of uh, political mandate behind it. So when they bought it, they, they went on like a very large media tour. They exercised their entire network and all of the sort of media muscle that they had. And they talked about how they were going to form a new black consciousness in New York, how they were going to bring people into action. Like this is really like, this is, this is how we are going to mobilize people to improve black life in America. And so they did that via the station, but when they bought the station, they made sure that everybody knew about it and that all of those, the sort of broader political message was out there. So WBLS was becoming a major success, but there was a lot of claims that added qualifiers to that success. You mentioned that them being referred to as the best black station presented a rather segregationist logic. What were the industry challenges of pushing back against that? Yeah, so I, yeah, the, the, the sort of the qualifiers that they, I mean, they weren't putting it on them themselves. They, they, they wanted to refer to themselves as just the, the best in New York, it was it was very important for them that there it was unqualified that they were unequivocally just the the best music station out there. Um, and I, I want to situate this because it changes over time. So around 1974, WBLS starts this upswing. It becomes from a a smaller station that's doing okay to all of a sudden like among the highest rated stations in New York. And by the like 1977, 1978, it is like known as a tastemaker in New York City. And it's broadcasting a very, very wide range of music. So, so it's playing R&B, um, what is like proto-disco, um, some jazz, like a very wide sampling of music. They gave their DJs a lot of latitude. It's like a very, very cosmopolitan mix of music to sort of taking over and, and leading the charge toward disco and disco adjacent dance musics. And this is really start where you start to see the sort of uh, qualifiers of them being called like the best black stations around 1978, 1979, they take over WABC as the number one station in New York. And I think it's, it's challenging for a large commercial station to lose that place in any context. But I think it's also painful when that happens to a station that, um, like the, I don't want to put words in anybody's mouth, but like the, the way Sutton and his milieu position it in the newspapers at the time, a station whose audiences the commercial stations value less. And if you look at the broadcasting, it's all very similar. The top rated stations are all playing the same disco music and disco adjacent music, but it's really the audiences and the perception of who's listening that become the sort of value judgment there. I'm really glad you brought up disco because you you dedicate some really interesting um time to it because prior to rap shifting the radio landscape 
disco was incredibly popular. You know, um, I think to a, a lot of people, we think about the, um, you know, the kind of white centric element of it. I love Chicago and, and certainly the, the white socks uh, disco sucks thing is, um, is a major, was a major issue here. But you, you say about disco that it articulated something deeper about the challenges of black owned, black operated, black oriented radio stations cutting to the heart of nationwide debates over the place of race in the culture industries. Could you tell us more about that? Yeah, so I, I think in particular, there's there's one uh, one newspaper source from the time that really stuck out to me. I think it was in radio and records where their black music columnist was writing about disco and called it like our music, a wolf in sheep's clothing. So it's something close to that. The, the exact phrase isn't right. But the, the idea was disco started as a black and brown and, and generally queer music in uh, the Northeast. And as it started to become popular and as it started to move away from those original communities. And I, I think Tim Lawrence is an author I really appreciate here where I, I believe he writes that like, you know, disco was ever was, was originally like before the PIR sound disco was whatever was being played at disco text. It didn't like have a necessarily a coherent genre. Um, it was like very contextualized into the, in those clubs, but as it starts to be, like solidify around a particular kind of sound and as it starts to become a popular music it goes from being a black and brown music to something that that chafes against um our expectations for what that kind of popular music should look and sound like and and what i think it's cited here is like a saturday night fever is like the the moment when when that changes um but the the sort of the tension that a lot of these broadcasters felt was like this is this is emphatically a black music like this is this is our cultural property this is something that we birth this is something that we should own and it's being taken over and popularized and consumed by white listeners without giving credit where credit is due and when you look at the funding that went to radio station and the ratings of the radio stations it became a really like a huge point of contention because if a radio station was thought of as having black audiences and playing disco, they would be like rated low down, like not a lot of money coming out from it. If a number, like the number one, number two radio station starts playing disco to a predominantly white or uh, perceived white audience, then they're making a huge amount of money off of it. And it, it felt like there was a lot of disparity between who the music came from, who it was for and who was making money off of it, which I think cuts right to the heart of what was being felt right before hip hop came onto the scene, which is just like, who is black cultural production for and who benefits from it. So after disco, but before rap, there was a programming concept called urban contemporary that created a lot of divisiveness in the radio industry. Can you tell us more about that? Yeah, I think, I think urban contemporary is, is a fascinating movement because it really, it, it is that, is that bridge between hip hop and disco, not so much in musical sound, but in how people understood the role of race and popular music. So around, I think the earliest mentions of urban contemporary are like late 1979 to early 1980s, but you really start to see it come up in 1981, 1982 and 1983. And I, I try to draw this out in the book, but there's really no consensus as to where it come from, comes from. Like three or four people dif- take three or four different people take credit for it, but it's really there's this moment where all of a sudden all of the radio industries are using it, and essentially it referred to a mix of music that was like mostly black artists, some crossover, um, not appreciably different than disco at the time, but it was meant to 
sort of carve out this sonic space that was not black radio. So it was not traditional, what you would traditionally associate with radio. It was not disco radio and it was not popular white radio. It was meant to sort of like gesture at a particular kind of audience while also being ambiguous enough to, um, to be inclusive. Uh, and in practice, there were some things like a, a lot of radio broadcasters talked about how it was polished sounding. The announcers had better diction. It was clearer. Uh, the signal was better. It sounded professional. And I put that in scare quotes. I, I, I'm, you, know, you can't see that in the podcast, but I want to make sure that like these very loaded words um, are, are handled sensitively. And the, the idea was to sort of take black music and present it with a very polished radio veneer to make it accessible to sort of like be that sonic signifier of the audience they thought they were broadcasting to and also to make it palatable to larger audiences. I really appreciate you covering all of this context because understanding that historical and cultural context really does a great shot, a job at showing how transformative hip hop was for the industry and culture. So I wanted now to shift focus to talk about some of those key personalities in hip hop radio. One of the most notable is Mr. Magic. Can you tell us more about him and where he came from? Yeah. So, so Mr. Magic started off as a DJ in New York and in the seventies, he had a radio show on a um, time brokered radio station, WHBI. So um, his first show was called the Disco Showcase. Um, so he would, uh, I think it was, I think it was weekly, but he would very late at night or early in the morning, depending on your perspective, would go to WHBI and broadcast for an hour or two and, and really play music that was like how artists would call it, like close to the streets. He had very close connections from being a DJ to um, artists, uh, from all sorts of different genres. Um, and over time, the disco showcase started to veer toward hip hop. And by the early 1980s, I think 1982 was when the official name changed. Uh, he went toward the rap attack. He found that he was playing more hip hop and rap music than disco at the time. And like disco completely fell out of favor in the early 1980s. So he rebranded to the rap attack and eventually signed on to WBLS to be their first hip hop DJ there and ran a very, very successful and very, very culturally important radio show for the 19th, like the, the duration of the 80s. So Rap Attack not only gained this reputation as being the home of hip-hop in New York, but it was also innovative as well for how tracks were mixed together by engineer all-star Marley Mall. Can you tell us more about him and how he brought that style to radio? Yeah, so so Marley Marl was a, a DJ in New York, um, did a large amount of live work, um, he ended up being convinced by Mr. Magic that he should take his uh, craft to the air. Magic promised him an audience. It was not an offer that he wanted to take immediately. He considered himself to be a live DJ. But I think I think Magic was eventually persuasive. And the way Magic framed it on the air was that it was the Mr. Magic rap attack with engineer all-star uh, DJ Marley Marl. And one of, the, one of the points I try to show throughout the book is that Artists like Marley Marl were incredibly influential in determining the sound of the genre over time. So uh, there's one one piece of context I want to point out, which is that WBLS, in distinction to a smaller time-brokered radio station like WHBI, 
was very technologically advanced, like state of the art equipment. There was a lot more, they broadcast live. So like that's, I, that's a point worth noting that, um, when the rap attack was broadcast on WBLS, they were together in the studio doing the set live together. Whereas at WHBI, it was a pre-recorded cassette and records that they brought in to the studio. So what Marley Marl was able to do was take all of these turntable innovations that he and other DJs were um, coming up with live and in their practice outside of the radio studio and broadcast that for a large listening audience. So you start to get, you start to, if you listen to the rap attack over time, you can hear the evolution of the way they're thinking about recombining sound. So it ends up beginning with just like adjacent mixing of going from one track to the other to then something that sort of anticipates sampling. I think I call it proto sampling where they're pulling in different bits of recorded sound and putting it over other tracks that they've mixed. And eventually you wind up with this very nuanced layered composed form of mixing that combines sounds that you like really were not intended to go together in a way that, uh, I think set the sonic uh, sonic stage for sampling to occur when that technology matured. So we were talking about cassette culture earlier and said, you know, you have to go to the cassettes, to the tapes to hear how magical this was. And you write to unpack how Mr. Magic and Marley Mall adapted rap to the radio it, you, that it helps to dive into the tapes, specifically one from December 1983. Can you tell us what's on that tape? So, so if this is the tape I'm thinking of, I, I picked this particular tape out of the larger archive of Marley Marl tapes because it evinces a pretty wide range of techniques that he's using uh, to mix recorded sound on the air. And the idea here is being like all of these techniques wind up becoming the sort of toolkit for producers who wind up sampling music and doing hip hop beat production later on. So it's a pretty eclectic mix. It has like a lot of standards from the era. So there's the Russell Brothers party machine, the Houdini's rap machine, or sorry, Russell Brothers party scene, Houdini's rap machine. There's a decent stretch of mixed run DMC tunes in there. And there's one of my favorite moments that I'll get to in a second is uh, a sort of ad hoc and personal mix of Keith LeBlanc's No Sellout, which is this really phenomenal track from the time where he's taking a bunch of uh, uh, phrases from a Malcolm X speech and mixing it over sort of an electro rap beat. So you start to see a bunch of different techniques in here that that go through what I think are a pretty standard uh, lineup of, of tools that DJs had at the time. And like the, it wouldn't be more than a couple years before you could hear in almost every single uh, sampled rap track. So you have things like, I, I call it like a, a like sort of serial mixing where it's one track into the other. So you start to hear Marley Mall doing techniques like aligning the beat BPM for different, um, uh, different tracks so that one can begin with the other. And you start to have a very smooth mix across one where one fades into the other. There are other moments where there's sharp disjunctures where one track will stop and then another one will come in and you have this like very, uh, like kind of abrupt moment where you like, you, can, you thought one track was going to continue and then the next pops in. And then finally, there's another where you start to get about, like I would say, three sources of sound going at once. And this is like sort of Keith LeBlanc's No Sellout, where it's the sort of foundation of the track is like this very sort of boisterous electro, electro rap beat. And on top of that, you have the sort of Malcolm X recording where he's uh, going through and uh, excerpting different uh 
different lines from that speech. But at the same time, he's he's bringing in a uh, set of lines from Martin Luther King's, uh, I don't know which speech it was off the top of my head, but a Martin Luther King speech. And he's sort of like staging a dialogue between these two different civil rights advocates and like whether or not there was sort of like that political message intended or whether these were just like sort of sonic artifacts that were available to them. It's like a really fascinating window into how recorded sound can stage these like broader political messages on top of like a very creative uh, musical underpinning. So regarding Rap Attack, you dedicate some time to the book to discuss the concept of liminal spaces. What are liminal spaces? Yeah, so so in like anthropological theory, a liminal space is typically like talked of as in rites of passages where if there's some stage in life that uh, or in the, the life course of a person in a community is going through, it's that period before they've exited one stage and entered another. So it's it's a concept that gets thrown around a lot in a bunch of different types of uh, literature in the humanities to refer to these uh, spaces between two static areas that are not quite one and not quite the other. Um, I use the uh, the notion of a liminal space to talk about the space between two different recorded tracks in a mix like such that Marley Marl would put together to talk about a kind of mixing where it is not quite one track and not quite the other, but it is something completely different. And that difference becomes something notable and important and stable in and of itself. And to give an example, the idea would be like in previous forms of mixing, you would have track A would begin and then slowly it would just become, you'd fade it out and it would become the other. You'd match tempos and then track A would become track B. But if you start to listen and time out Marley Marl's mixes, you might have like two minutes of track A and then four minutes of interplay between track A and track B such that like you hear both at the same time. And then eventually it would become another two minutes of track B. But the critical difference here and the thing I want to point out is that the important part of that mix is the the point where track A and track B are playing at the same time. It becomes something totally new and it opens up this new sonic space where we're not just hearing records as distinct from one another. Um, We're starting to hear recorded sound layered on top of one another of two different sonic sources uh, like interacting harmonically, rhythmically, melodically in a way that presaged the entire sort of what we would call the like audio cultural backdrop of uh, digital sampling. Another station foundational to New York rap radio was WRKS, more known as KISS FM. And KISS FM's owner, Barry Mayo, he branded the station as being the sound of the streets. Who is Barry Mayo and how did KISS FM become the sound of the streets? Yeah, absolutely. So so Barry Mayo to me is a really fascinating and important figure in this history. So he uh, sort of came up through the radio ranks where he was on the radio station at his university. I, I believe it was Howard. I don't want to get that wrong, but I think he was on Howard's radio station, um, worked at a bunch of different stations nationally, moved to Chicago and was involved in forget exactly which Chicago stations, but uh, wound up being important in basically every market he moved to. And he felt that he had figured out a sort of recipe for success in every single market. And that was like very firmly embedding himself with the listeners in that market. So I think at the time there was this idea in radio that a, like if you broadcast it, they will come and that radio stations themselves were tastemakers. And Barry Mayo 
was part of this vanguard that combined a increasingly sophisticated array of radio research with very like personal qualitative exposure to his listeners via like going to record stores and talking to people and figuring out who they're buying, going to performances and talking to people there and like really trying to understand on the ground level, what resonated with the people who lived in his media market. So eventually he got called up to be the program manager of WRKS and he brought that philosophy with him. So when he talked about being the sounds of the streets of New York, he quite literally meant that he and his uh, the people who worked for him would be going to clubs, would be going to one stops, would be going to record stores and trying to understand what the people who he wanted to broadcast to were listening to um, at the record level, at the genre level, and, and really like find that method of connecting with them sonically. One of the clubs that he would visit to kind of inspire the vision for his station was the New York club, the Roxy. Who were some of the DJs and performers there that he saw that influenced that vision? Yeah, absolutely. So, so the Roxy was a really important club at the time. This is sort of this like synth is like the, the classic synthesis of uptown and downtown that, that led to really this like broader interest in hip hop outside of the, like um, Harlem, the Bronx, and Queens, sort of the outer boroughs. It was this moment where it's like a really, really um, generative and creative uh, time in New York City. And I think, again, Tim Lawrence has covered that period really wonderfully in his uh, book, Life and Death on the New York Dance Floor. Um, so there are two DJs in particular that I, I well, there were, there were a couple DJs. I think the broader seen there was it was a partially a zulu nation run event so a lot of the important uptown djs would find their way down there and at the time barry mayo was looking to find a competitor to go up against uh mr magic in the like saturday night uh hip-hop spot and this would be saturday night 10 a.m when wbls was winning in the ratings because they had mr magic there so he had experimented with some djs before it didn't work out he was looking for more and two that were regulars at the Roxy that he wound up targeting were uh, DJ Red Alert and Chuck Chillout. And Chuck Chillout and uh, Red Alert were both sort of like poster children for that uptown-downtown collaboration. Um, Red Alert was from Harlem and the Bronx. Uh, Chuck Chillout is from the Bronx. But they both were very involved in um, the downtown scene as well. And they did it really out of the love of the music, like a... I remember talking to Chuck Chillout about it and he said that they were just like they, they hung out with each other because they found in one another a person who wanted to go from club to club with them and like would be fine not leaving until 11 in the morning the next day when the sun was out. They really just wanted to be completely embedded in that scene. So when Mayo was interested in finding folks to go on the air to compete against uh, Magic and Marley Marl, those were two natural candidates for it and they hung out at the Roxy. So earlier we were discussing rap radio tape archives, and you note that though a lot of archive materials have fallen into the internet void through like bad metadata, I remember the LimeWire days, you know, it, it, I completely understand that. But you say that tapes for Zulu Beat get shared quite a bit, and you call Zulu Beat a transformative moment in hip-hop history. Tell us more about Zulu Beat. Yeah, so, so Zulu Beat was a show that was... Um hosted by DJ Africa Islam, who was also part of the Zulu Nation. Um, and there are a couple of reasons that I, I think the show is interesting and why I think it's like sort of 
Um, I actually, this is a perfect seg coming from the Roxy because I think that show more than any other show sounds like allows you to hear what that uptown downtown collaboration looked like. So, uh, one thing I try to cover in the book is that is I try to, I try to like given a counter history to discographical histories of hip hop. So it's not just like a chain of record to record, but it's really like a, it's a sounding of the preferences of this community at this time. And I don't think any show captures that as well as the Zulu beat where um, there are the rap tracks. There are all of these different personalities giving interviews. You do hear the common records, but you also hear a lot of new wave music. You got to hear electronic music. Um, it's a really, really wide, like very open approach to what goes on the radio. And I think like Islam's perspective on it is like, if it sounds good, I'm going to play it. Like if it's something that people are listening to in the clubs, I'm going to take what's happening in the clubs and play it. And to me, it's just, it was really eye opening to go from like traditional histories of hip hop, which are just like, and then this record came out and then this record came out and then this record came out to actually hearing what these people were listening to on the ground and what that, what was resonating with that community at that moment. How you explore how rap radio resonates with the community is a really fascinating thing. And earlier in the conversation, we were talking about one of the ways in which the community is engaged with by radio was through shout outs and shout outs were a foundational feature of Zulu beat. And I want to read a quote from your book about shout outs that I found really compelling. And it's, you write, Listening for the lived experiences behind shoutouts forces us towards speculative modes of listening. As direct and as public as shoutouts are, they toggle, like so much in black culture, between disclosure and concealment. They hide as much as they give away. To know more about the hip-hop community, we need to dwell in this obscurity. We need to mind the listeners whose voices we cannot hear. And I thought that was just so incredibly profound, and I want to know more about that. Yeah, okay, so so let me see if I can, I can, uh, I can give a little bit more here. So... So I, I wanted to approach hip hop shout outs with a respect for what they can tell us and who the people were who gave those shout outs in the first place. And a lot of this is just kind of, I don't, I don't know if this is like a, 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 my own anxiety about disclosure in a modern media ecosystem where we have no uh, pretense to privacy. And part of this is like trying to position my work uh, after some writers who have made it very clear that like there, there is a right to obscurity that we shouldn't necessarily resurrect what particularly in black life, what everybody has been through and gone through that. Like not everybody whose voice winds up in the historical record has consented to their voice winding up in the historical record. And there, there's something to be said about, about letting, letting the sources be the sources and not trying to excavate what's beyond excavating. Um, that said, there's they're so evocative these are these shout outs are so evocative they really like they put you in touch with what was happening in these communities what they cared about who was who was interacting with one another like i think my favorite part is that often hosts would let the listeners read their own shout outs you have that snippet of the voice you have that like that person like you you can hear that enthusiasm you can hear the excitement of them being on the radio and having access to it and trying to imagine what that meant to them at the time like the sort of like 
under underlying like access or opportunity that led to that excitement. And you can hear this like really dense web of connection being sounded of like people reading nicknames and shouting out place names and like hearing this web of people and neighborhoods and relations come off the page. But then at the same time, I, I guess I felt a little bit anxious or uneasy being like, okay, I'm, I'm a white author writing in like the 2010s about people who were like in communities I did not belong to and don't have necessarily a, a claim to make public um, in in the present. And I, I just wanted to sort of flag that power dynamic and note that while these are really fascinating historical documents, they, they bring us into this world. There's also a lot we can't know. And there's maybe like, I, I, sh- I just need to make it clear that like, I want to be sensitive to the limits of what I can say on behalf of someone. And I found that was really fascinating. And it segues to my next question, because when you talk about the right to obscurity and acknowledging that we don't necessarily have that same lived experience and to be able to accurately assess that, one question I have just like as an objective viewpoint is that if you don't, if that, if there is that right to obscurity and you do relish in that obscurity, it does present the possibility, or at least it seems like it presents a possibility where someone else can write that own history, write your own history for you. And this brings up an anecdote you, you touch upon at the end of your book from 1993 about a reverend from Harlem named Calvin O. Butts. And you write that this, this anecdote weighed heavily on the period of hip hop you chose to cover in your book. And you said it encapsulates the decade that preceded it. And connecting that kind of obscurity idea to this anecdote, I want to know what that anecdote, well, first tell us what that was, but what did it mean for you in your journey writing this book? Yeah, absolutely. So so the story that you're alluding to is this moment in 1993 when a reverend in Harlem who sort of has a very long track record of social good and political mobilization. And like, like if someone has the receipts, he has the receipts for like, doing good in a community, um, wound up coming out very publicly and very emphatically against gangster rap in a way that sort of rippled throughout radio and broadcasting and the sort of like ecosystem of artists and labels and uh, all of the other parts of the music industry that led to that things getting sold and consumed. So he he staged this event where he called for everybody to bring their gangster rap records uptown um, to Harlem, where he would then run over them with a bulldozer. And the idea would be he was going to crush this bad music that's hurting our community. Um, he was like very keyed into this notion that um, pernicious representations of black life on gangster rap records were hurting the black political cause and black life in general. And, and sort of part of the reason I thought this was such an interesting bookend to the story that I wanted to tell is because I was very interested in the 70s and 80s and how figures like Percy Sutton and um, Barry Mayo and others were imagining uh, radio as a tool for improving the image of black life. And then the artists themselves were completely interested in just broadcasting their lived experience. Like they, all of the people I interviewed, everyone I talked to said like, you know, we just wanted to take what we were doing and put it out there. We really just, we wanted to give some sort of sense of what we were hearing and experiencing in the streets. It's sort of why I pay so much attention to shout outs because it's a community telling its own, like telling itself what's important to it. So 
all of a sudden, Butts comes out and says, no, these representations are not what we want. Um, we really, we just need to, we need to run these over with the bulldozer. And to me, that's like, that is the heart of the generational conflict in the book, which is if you have an older population who has one set of political tactics for improving black life coming up against a younger generation who is finding their voice through this new kind of musical and creative expression. And they just completely are talking past one another. They're completely unable to see each other's side. Um, and, and to me, that's like, that's like, that's sort of the, the missed opportunity here, which is like they like hip hop radio opened this space where there could have been that generational dialogue. There could have been that sort of ameliorative moment. There could have been this like place where the generations uh, work together to find sort of a mode of representation that worked or fit their political causes. Or maybe that's just like wishful thinking or like completely unaligned with the messiness of reality. But instead we get this like ossification of that generational conflict that I think inflected the debate for the rest of the decade. It, that anecdote really fascinated me because it seems to be just the next iteration of an earlier culture war debate that just preceded a couple of years before uh, the PMRC and the the debate on obscenity in rock music and reading and knowing that kind of history and then hear, and then reading your thoughts on the on the right to obscurity really kind of complicates that whole that whole debate and. I thought it was incredibly fascinating because when you close your book, you, you, you're saying that if rap music had broad-based, cross-generational, and institutionally sanctioned support amidst those protests and debates against it during the 90s, then it could have opened the door for genuine debate. And my question for you is, what would you have liked to have seen from that debate in hindsight, and how has that debate evolved over the last several decades? Ooh, that's a, you're ending with the tough questions there. Um, love it. Um, so, so what would I have liked to have seen? So I think like maybe, maybe we go back to this notion of there's a, there are a couple things I, I want to point out there. So I want to like sort of reprise this notion of urban versus the rest and like flag. This is the moment where we start to get Grammy categories for urban as well. So part of this is like, I think this is this is part of that moment where we see this complete solidification of like a separate but equal logic that's like separates black cultural production from all cultural production and the way we think about it in the broader life. Like the the reality is, is hip hop is probably the most significant musical development of the like last quarter of the 20th century. Like I, I can't think of another music that has become so ubiquitous and so important to popular culture um, more so than hip hop. Um, and yet it's still separate, but equal. It's still like hip hop records are in the urban category. We still think of it as different. We think of it even uh, completely in the face of all evidence, um, as like, uh, yeah, uh, somehow this, like this other thing. Um, the other thing that I think about is like, there's a paper that I saw given at when I was still in grad school by a scholar named William Chang, where he was talking about the murder of a young black boy by a white person who heard his music and sort of like thought of it as like sonic menace and saw this, like this black sound as like sort of a, either a predecessor of violence or this like inciter of rage in such a way that like led to physical violence. 
And one of the reasons I was so keyed into this anecdote at the time is because I was thinking about this relationship in the present of like, what are these signifiers of difference that we have that lead to treating people different in like a way that would lead to something like a murder. Um, and I think like treating, I think gangster rap is, is interesting in particular because it's, it brings up these like themes that if not handled properly could lead someone to believe that there's like a room, like room for violence, like room for terror, like whatever that end up getting propagated over time. When in like the, the point I'm trying to make is that like, you're completely missing the point if you're queuing into all of the, the violence, queuing into the gang stuff. Like, like these are like, it's creative. It's like verbal fireworks. It's like all, all of this stuff is happening in the context of like very, very virtuosic and informed music making. Um, and, and if we really strip it down to just like the, the surface level, then it has like really serious ramifications over time. So my final question, a lot has changed in radio and how people access music over the last few decades. There's the increased media monopolization, there's social media, streaming music, SoundCloud, and most recently DJs designed by AI programs. What do you see for the future of rap radio? Yeah, that's a good question. So I can tell you less about what I see for the future and more like what I listen to, like where I, where I think people are carrying on the legacy of this music. Um, and in particular, there's an online radio service that I am a perhaps the biggest fanboy of called NTS.live. It's run out of the UK, um, but it's sort of like the, the shows that are broadcast there are very much in the mold of what I hear from early rap radio, where it's people who are embedded in very specific communities of musical practice, broadcasting what they're playing in the clubs, what they're hearing there, what they think is on the vanguard, as well as like longer features. And in particularly in terms of like rap and all of the subgenres of rap, I find it particularly strong. And I just, I love to hear that there's continues to be a space for that kind of radio in the present. Well, John, I cannot thank you enough for being my guest today and for having this really engaging and enlightening conversation. It's a really brilliant book and you should be incredibly proud. Bradley, thank you so much for the wonderful conversation and for the insightful questions. Like there's, there's no more gratifying experience as an author than to have someone take your work seriously. So I just want to thank you for that and for the opportunity. I've really enjoyed speaking with you. I really appreciate that. My name is Bradley Morgan and you've been listening to New Books and Music with my guest today, John Clace. His latest book is Breaks in the Air, The Birth of Rap Radio in New York City, and is published by Duke University Press.